0: Welcome to Episode 124, Supporting Asian American Clients in a Time of Crisis, Culturally Informed Care. Featuring Dr. Helen Sue, Clinical Psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Erias and Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that I know is in many people's hearts and on many people's minds right now. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Helen Sue. She is a lead outreach clinician and liaison to the Asian American Activity Center, as well as a lecturer at Stanford University. She's also the past president of the Asian American Psychological Association. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sue. Great. Glad to be here. So why don't we talk a little bit first about you and your background and how you have this specialization in working with the AAPI. And for our listeners, that's the Asian American and Pacific Islander population. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself, I have a PsyD and I
1: knew I wanted to do clinical psychology Um, coming out of a fairly research oriented Undergraduate program, I realized, yeah, that's not really where I want to be. I want to serve communities that are traditionally underserved. And I actually did not intend to specialize in BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, People of Color, or Asian Americans. But the further I got my training, the more I realized a lot of clinical issues, family issues were not being addressed and people were being underserved. Um, My family, myself, I'm an immigrant from Taiwan of Chinese heritage. So I really understood a lot of the intergenerational issues that clients were facing, that we were seeing, like people were saying that they had a hard time finding therapists who understood um, some of the
0: cultural factors that were really important in therapy. Absolutely. And as you and I were talking about releasing this interview, it's obviously a very emotional topic um, for Asian American and Pacific Islander individuals right now. So as we record this, we are currently at the very end of April, and there are so many hate crimes that have been committed against AAPI individuals. So gosh, there's so much to cover. Um, Mm -hmm. But in our talk today, what do you see as being I guess, some of the basic and most fundamental foundational points that clinicians need to think about in supporting AAPI clients.
1: Mm -hmm. There's a lot to cover. I guess first is just even understanding the community. Um, So maybe we'll have time to talk a bit about understanding the communities and then what are the current issues and how they've actually existed historically, but tend to flare up at certain times like now when
0: we're in crisis. Let's talk about the current flair. I Mm -hmm. think few people can speak better to it than you can. There's so much, um, I mean, gosh, I was driving to work today and written on the back of somebody's car was stop Asian hate. Right now, when there is so much active, quote unquote, Asian hate, where did this come from that there's been this new immersion um, of hatred toward AAPI? Mm Mm-hmm. There's a pretty clear body of research looking at
1: just internet activity, which is fascinating, that showed how as the COVID-19 virus started to spread, especially during the time early on when people didn't know what was really happening, um, there was an origin believed to be in Wuhan in China, that suddenly there was an explosion of xenophobia, scapegoating, um negative stereotyping and blame. And so anecdotally, a lot of us in community service knew that this was going to be a big problem. So for example, the Stanford anti-Asian harassment website is something we created last year, knowing that we were already hearing incidents were going up, people being harassed even on campus, uh, in the community, and so the internet research had shown, too, that every time that slurs were used, racial slurs, um, that they spread like wildfire and were amplified across the internet. And so there's been a clear increase with that kind of blaming language to our current present day. And, you know, it's actually not new in U.S. history. Um, actually, this concept of, quote unquote, yellow peril, scapegoating and blame existed in the 1800s um, so there have been periods of time that this is not new racism um, treating Asian Americans as a perpetual foreigner even though we have like fourth and fifth generation Asian Americans people who've never been to Asia in their life who don't speak any other language you know serve in the military the PD so I think the diversity of the group is something That gets confused and lost a lot too. Um, The fact that AAPIs always feel judged by phenotype, so how they look, um, and that that becomes an easy target for racism as if they're somehow less American or a perpetual foreigner
0: is a common microaggression experienced by Asian Americans. One of the things you mentioned was a term yellow peril. Can you speak to that and explain what that is for our listeners?
1: Mm hmm. Yellow peril was a sort of propaganda campaign in the 1800s that tended to, it was in reaction to a large influx of Chinese immigrant labor and tended to have stereotypes that were familiar to what people might hear now, that somehow these people were um, carrying disease or could never blend in or fit in. And it's always mixed up with a little bit of economic stuff, too. So even in the 1800s, a lot of the resentment toward immigrants was as a labor force, as competition. And in the present day, some of the research on microaggressions toward Asian Americans has a strong component also of economic resentment or threat.
0: So there, there is a theme through uh, U.S. history. Present day, here we are still very much in the midst of the pandemic, you and I could spend quite a bit of time, I'm sure, talking about some of the language that's been used politically that has contributed to the phenomenon that we're seeing right now. For many therapists, particularly those who are outside of the community and don't have a visceral awareness and understanding of what it's like from the inside out, we are talking about so many different cultures, so many different languages that are all squished into one acronym. Can you speak a little bit about the considerations and cultural differences within the AAPI community, knowing that that is a loaded question (laughs)
1: that asks Mm -hmm. for a lot of
0: information in a short amount of time?
1: Yeah, I've got a lot of practice. So a really great place for, of course, every clinician to start is how does your client self-identify? because if one way to think about Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, we're more like a coalition, we're not really an ethnic or racial or even cultural group. Um, so the author Kathy Park Hong called it more coalition. And I think that's the best description. Uh, she's the author of Minor Feelings, by the way, which is a fabulous contemporary book to get an understanding of um, really good, thoughtful essays on the Asian American experience. But We're talking about dozens of countries, dozens of languages, religions, so countries of origin. So as a clinician, I would say trying to just, as you're doing your assessment, actually, how does your client self-identify? Are they an immigrant like I am? And there's still a difference between an immigrant who came as a toddler like me and someone who came, say, as an adult or as an international student, Um They may not align themselves with the Asian American identity. Some people are like, no, I'm definitely Korean or Hmong American. You know, I don't feel affiliation with the other groups. And then that's where they're at. I also don't always use NHPI, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander, because they're actually also their own completely unique group. They're often with us, um, lumped with Asian Americans, um, and it's a great part of a coalition. But I also want to honor that Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, in other respects, are more like indigenous communities. So really wanting to honor that as well. Or there's also another acronym called APIDA, Asian Pacific Islander Desi Americans. And Desi really acknowledges um, South Asians so kind of just getting a feel for where they're at, because you might look at somebody and just say, okay, they're Asian or they're Asian American, but actually there's all this depth of how they see themselves. Are they third generation? They could be fifth generation here. Um, one of our fastest growing demographics is also like mixed heritage, children and communities, um, and also transracial adoptees. So really getting a clear sense of wanting to understand and being extra careful not to make assumptions um, based on phenotype.
0: That phenomenon of phenotype, that's the source of so much discrimination that faces this community as a whole right now and in the past. Can you speak to that part of being assigned a certain identity because of the way you look?
1: It's a common thing that comes up in therapy that a a perfectly well-intentioned therapist might just make an assumption. And so I've heard stories about clients saying like, well, I feel like, or, you know, not just in therapy, but in, in places in my life, people act as if based on my face, they think I don't speak English or something. And it's like, dude, I'm a third generation, like American, you know, from Stockton or something. Um... And so all the things that get attributed, and then how people get lumped together, and it has consequences, right? So for example, some of our smaller groups, so it's really important too that we're a super bimodal community. And what does that mean? That means if you look at the normal bell curve of, you know, a population, we're the opposite, we're bimodal. We have the highest income communities way over the um national norm, but we have the very, very lowest poverty-stricken communities too. We have communities that are API with the absolute highest educational attainments and the absolute lowest in high dropout rates. Same thing for home language, English proficiency. We have communities with, again, high education, high advanced degrees, high English proficiency, and then we have super linguistically isolated communities that are really, really um, living in poverty, hard to access services. So we're so bimodal, and that causes a lot of confusion. So for example, in communities that are really struggling with more issues, perhaps because they came later, or they came as refugees, they have more trauma, less resources, they often feel invisible when people assume, oh, you're Chinese. You know, it's like, no, I'm not Chinese. I'm, you know, from Bhutan, or I'm from Burma, or I'm Hmong. And, And so their needs may be missed. But on the other hand, we're also trying to figure out what are the needs like with the model minority myth, which is really harmful. It's this idea that oh, you're all rich, you're all smart, you're doing well, but that hides real needs in the community, and again, it blends us all together. A really sad case of you know how this works is a hugely politically gal- galvanizing event for Asian American communities was in the I think it was 1982 was when Vincent Chin was murdered. He was a Chinese-American man, and he was mistaken for Japanese by two laid-off auto workers who blamed Japan for losing their auto jobs, and they murdered Vincent. And so it's a good example, of too, of how we've come together as a coalition realizing that in the U.S., we're often mistaken for the same anyway.
0: That phenomenon has carried over today in the attacks we've seen against individuals who were perceived to be AAPI, but were not, who were Mm -hmm. Hispanic or or of other origin. Mm -hmm. What do you think some of the features about Asian American communities are most important for therapists to understand?
1: One is definitely those those demographics, so not making – so being very thorough with assessment, um, of course, we all would assess any way family of origin would have you, but I think in keeping with the model minority myth, and also how we've sort of been socialized, I think, culturally and in the US, Asian Americans have a tendency to not speak up a lot about experiences, um, tend to try to focus on work as a way of gaining legitimacy or recognition or competency. And in fact, that's kind of where we're at some of our struggles now. What I've noticed too, with a lot of Asian Americans who are now grappling with anxiety and anger and fear, um, in this climate of hate is that many of us don't have a lot of experience articulating and talking about racism and microaggressions compared to say our black colleagues and families and friends, um, it's less talked about. Culturally, there's often an issue of handle things in your family, don't talk about things that are difficult, um, just focus on your work. So we're not even well equipped to articulate some of what we've experienced, except now you're seeing a huge explosion in people actually really expressing about and writing about and sharing, and an
0: explosion of AAPI-seeking therapy And prior to the pandemic, what were the rates of mental health service utilization among the AAPI community and how has that changed in relation not only to the pandemic, but then also this wave of hate crimes?
1: I believe it's Mental Health America that had published an infographic a few years ago about how if the general population, about 18% of people were seeking therapy for APIs. it was something like, I think it was less than half, like eight percent, you know, and it wasn't because we have less needs. It was a combination of cultural stigma, not being able to find um, or access services um, was a a big barrier. You know, there's barriers about like financial, insurance, language, and then you add on top of that cultural like... um, competence and humility, that that adds a lot of sort of barriers to the path.
0: One thing I saw recently on social media was a conversation between clinicians about paying extra attention about what uh, what's, uh, specification somebody is looking for in a therapist and how it came up was someone was seeking a therapist of East Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And then there was a lot of confusion about what East Asian meant. Can you speak to why that difference is important for us to be keeping in mind when we're referring so that people on the outside of the community are not committing those same assumptions and lumping everybody together? Yeah,
1: as clinicians, I think we always walk this fine line of like, we want to be very specific and careful in our assessment without trying to make somebody spend a whole bunch of time educating us. But I think there is a way to respectfully ask someone, you know, I want to be really clear what you see as your most salient identities because it might be that you are, say, Thai American, or it may be more salient to you, you know, about the fact that you are a child of refugees and your your income level, or it might be that you're queer um, or live with a certain disability. So being really careful with that. And the reason someone might specify East Asian is that within AAPI communities, there is a growing awareness too of wanting, for example, East Asia generally refers to say China, Korea, Japan, the the big the big ones in the in northern Northeast Asia, right? And and those cultures are really different than say um Southeast, when we're talking about Vietnam or Laos, um, or if we're in India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, they're geographically on different parts of the equator. They're culturally very different. And what about the Philippines? Um, that's a huge community in the US, one of the largest AAPI communities. And there's also people speaking up that, for example, the, let me think, the six largest AAPI groups in the United States are Chinese, Indian, Filipino, Korean, and I believe Japanese. And so a lot of times people will talk about Asian Americans and they're talking about these groups, but that leaves out a lot of other people. So you may have someone who's like, I'm thinking an East Asian therapist because I want somebody who understands those family dynamics or cultural pieces But for example, there's a movement called, like, they created a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Brown Asians exist, where a lot of Filipinos and South Asians are really speaking up about the fact that there's a lot of articles written or work done that talks about Asian Americans and leaves them out completely, even though
0: they are two of the largest groups of Asian Americans in the United States. I appreciate you breaking that down. Let's talk about when Asian-Americans seek therapy. I'm curious, in your eyes, how has that changed more recently? I mean, I have seen on social media an explosion in request in result or as a result of the vicarious trauma and the fear. Mm -hmm. Um, But before that, how has it changed? What are the main concerns that generally the Asian-American individual or family is going to be bringing into therapy?
1: So before the explosion in violence and harassment, we already were starting to see slightly more Asian Americans seeking treatment, which I see as a positive. Um, there's definitely a generational difference. I think we're seeing that across the board, right? That young people are much more willing to talk about mental health, um, talk with each other on social media. So that is a positive. Although since the, I believe, late 70s, Stansu had done a major research survey that looked at first contact with the mental health system. And for decades, it's held true that for most Asian Americans, their first contact was emergency. So they weren't coming sooner and doing more preventative work, which is, of course, what we would like to see. And so that's changing very, very slowly. Um, before this escalation and violence, we tended to see a lot of people dealing with intergenerational issues, that that was huge. What do you do if you're raised by people who have had severe trauma, who may have an immigration stress, who have massive intergenerational issues, who may have a language barrier within the same home? You know, I've literally talked to people who are like, I don't, I can't even have a proper argument with my dad because my you know, Korean isn't good enough and his English isn't good enough. And we just both get so frustrated. <clears throat> so a lot of intergenerational issues and issues around, yeah, immigration stress, trauma, um, microaggressions in the workplace, identity, those kind of things. And then now in this past couple years, we're really seeing like skyrocketing anxiety, um, fears for safety, and what seems most painful is not even just fear for personal safety, but really feeling worried and protective for elders and for kids, dealing with bullying and harassment, and the pain that brings up about wanting to protect the people you love, feeling unfairly blamed for things, used as a political scapegoat, um, and it's brought up identity issues, too, that people struggle with. You know, there are many U.S.-born Asian Americans who've just never had to really question where they belonged in life that are now finding themselves singled out in a way that maybe they haven't experienced that much before. Depending on where you live, APIs maybe experienced a
0: lot of microaggressions or racism their whole lives, but others really didn't. Can you speak to that a little bit and how that's been different for... Different populations, different um, states, different zip codes, I'm sure. I mean, there's a huge difference in that experience, but can you speak to that as a whole?
1: I mean, imagine a young person who, say, goes to school in San Francisco or Fremont, California, right? If they're Asian American, they are used to the fact that there's plenty of other people and lots of different diversity in their school, Um and that if there's some things like cultural or family traditions that they have, that there will be somebody else who also shares that, right? Um, they live in a city with huge cultural festivals, for example, um, and easy access to all kinds of like food or places of worship where we've had people who've grown up where maybe they were the only um, Asian family in town or at their school and they were always made to feel that something was wrong with the way they age or how their parents looked or that they spoke another language and actually were really raised with a sense of feeling somehow less than like. Um, and so there's a whole other factor that might come into therapy of internalized racism. I mean we see that with internalized sexism internalized homophobia how people have felt their whole lives to be made ashamed of who they are um and so there's a lot of reclaiming like a healthy sense of self if you've maybe never seen models of that and also getting very negative messages there's also what uh my friend EJ Ramos has written about colonial mentality, that some of this is intergenerational, right? Like some of my students have internalized racism from going to an all white school and always feeling like the one left out all through, say, high school or whatever formative years. Some of our families suffer colonial um, mentality, which EJ talked about when you come from a culture that maybe has been. Colonized, um, oppressed for generations? Are you raised with the very ideas that somehow, oh, being darker is terrible or, um, you know, Western beauty ideals or education is somehow better? And so those are topics that people really
0: do explore in the therapy room as well. There's so much here that we can talk about. One of the other considerations that I think is very real, particularly for Asian women, is the sexualization of Asian women. Can you speak to that consideration and what clinicians need to keep in mind when working with a female identifying AAPI person? Hopefully, you've all been reading
1: quite a bit about Asian women raising their voices following the Atlanta like horrific murders that specifically targeted three asian businesses um and i think that plays into a lot of what a lot of us have experienced our whole lives in the united states of and it's a it's a there's two sides of this coin the explicit sexualization of asian women and girls and the explicit demasculinization of asian men and boys right so this is a systemic issue and it's quite complicated um But if you think of it this way, so many of the images we see in popular media, right? We always tend to depict like the Asian man as like the tech guy or kind of nerdy. Um, that is slowly changing, I think, in popular media. A lot of powerful media has always depicted the very few times that you might see Asian women, um, in movies or whatever. They were often like war movies. And so there's a very complicated history about. U.S. imperialism and colonialism in other countries that often encounters with Asian women in those kind of terrible wartime conditions. People, for example, may have been sex workers to survive, you know, and it didn't represent actual Asian women at all, except for in this one very narrow slice of history. But it spread into this dehumanizing fetish that If you talk to Asian women and girls, they'll often say they've experienced all their lives. So, and again, the like confusion of who you are. So, I've certainly been in the street and had people screaming Konnichiwa at me. And it's since I was a child, and I was like, what? And it's like, oh, they think you're Japanese or they're trying to hit on you because they have some weird Asian fetish, you know? So, we talk about yellow fever as being this like gross fetishization. Even in the queer community, people have talked about rice queens, right? And so it's the ways that we have a fetish that isn't about, oh, I'm really attracted and want to know this person. It's I have these like stereotypes and images that really obliterates the individual humanity of a person and that there are systemic ways that are rooted in imperialistic history about why we've done that to certain cultures and to certain genders. Um, So it's a very painful experience for a lot of Asian women. Like if you imagine the normal sexual harassment that women face anyway, going about their daily lives, but adding that really ugly piece of, you know, if you talk with clients who will say just normal things, like I'm just trying to enjoy a party at school or, going to get my groceries, and then somebody's coming up and throwing all these disgusting like fetishes at me or following me.
0: That must have been awful for you as a kid. I mean, always, but I'm curious, how do, through your lens, professionally and personally speaking – how do elders in the Asian American community tend to address those initial examples of discrimination toward kids like you talked about?
1: I think our, our probably most suffering community now are the sandwich generation because they're worried about both their elders and their kids. <laughs> and it can be different. Um, our elders have tended to handle things with a certain stoicism. Um, There tends to be a collectivist bent and a a multi-generational family type situation with many Asian American families, but there tends to be stoicism or we try not to talk too much about problematic things. We don't want to worry each other, but right now in this climate, it's almost impossible. They do some corporate consulting. I've talked to a lot of Asian staff at different places, and it's hard for them. Like, I make all this money. I've done all the right things, followed all the rules, you know, sort of attained all the, like, normal respectability, and yet here I am telling my elderly parents they can't go for a walk, or they can't go to the grocery store because I'm worried about them. Or here's my kid saying he's coming home from school, and people said slurs at him, and he didn't know what they meant and having to explain, like, this really ugly stuff. Um, was it Andy Kim? It was actually a state representative, uh, a government, who talked about how hard it was to have his little boy come home and have and and say kids at school were calling him slurs or, um, you know, related to China virus or something. And his son was so little, he was honestly confused. He's like, I'm a New Jersey boy, you know? <laughs> And I've Couldn't got understand. anything to do with me. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know why they were saying these things, like because he's not Chinese, um, he's Korean American and he's from New Jersey, you know. But how hard and painful it is to navigate that um, for yourself and then also
0: for your elders and for your kids. For many marginalized communities, the habit had been to keep a keep a stiff upper lip. Mm -hmm. to not talk about it, to acknowledge it happened, but otherwise move on. Typically, Asian Americans pursue therapy at a rate much lower than their white counterparts. Is part of that phenomenon, that stoicism of we don't talk about the bad thing, and we just kind of accept as it is and move on.
1: There's a lot of good reasons. One is that, yes, uh, there's a tendency that that's how we cope. You sort of just work hard, put your head down. Of course, what we're seeing now with this increase in harassment is like, that doesn't work, (laughs) right? (laughs) Just trying to color in the lines isn't going to protect you. One factor, too, to think about is, especially if your client is an immigrant, um, really making sure that they understand limits of confidentiality, but how strong confidentiality is. So, for example, I've worked with some immigrants that came from China that the laws are not the same for therapy there. And so they actually really liked the fact that here, I would be fined thousands of dollars, you know, and be in serious violation if, if you know, so they, they really trusted that the confidential laws here were different. So some people come from countries of origin that don't have the same kind of laws or licensure boards. So that's also a fear, right, Would people find out. So really as therapists really soothing those fears like hey explaining this is how it works here very carefully um there's a tendency to feel that things should be solved within a family so i think for most communal cultures there's that tendency um and hence often by the time an aapi family comes to therapy it's already been going on for some time or they might come because an authority recommended it like a teacher or it may be an MD referral and then the final issue is of course access and then finding the right therapist so access I mean you could do a whole thing about just insurance issues and transportation and language so that's a big thing but assuming all those things are taken care of I mean I live in Silicon Valley a lot of APIs do have insurance um But then it becomes a question of, is this therapist going to be helpful to me? And what's even more alarming that I hear stories about is sometimes a therapist can actually cause more harm, even if well-intentioned through their own stereotyping or lack of skill. So I have, there's a lot of social media posts and I've even put a, a, a video on YouTube Explaining to a potential client, here's questions or things you might ask a therapist if you want to ascertain if they sort of have the culturally affirming skills. And I'll be the first to say, therapist ethnic or culture match or gender match is not required. It's not. There aren't enough of us anyway, so it's impossible, but it's also not required. However, that would require a therapist to do a lot of careful practice of cultural humility, right? That constant growth mindset of like, okay, am I understanding this correctly? Um, Clarifying things, being respectful, thinking outside my own worldview, doing a little research as needed. Um, So for example, we'll ask, we're trying to train clients now, like you can ask a therapist, what kind of training have you ever had? Maybe with anyone in my group. And the real answer to that question for most of us is almost none. If you really think about what we learned when we got licensed, there was maybe one multicultural class. You know, um, we've read very little about how to actually be effective therapists with AAPIs. Gordon Nagyama Hall, uh, also a former Asian American Psych Association president, has talked very openly about his career and research. And the fact that I think it was like 2011, but basically there was like a 10 or 20 year span that the National Institute of Health funded for AAPI health projects, 0.17% of the funding, 0.17. Now we are about 6% of the U S population. So you think about that funding and then you realize yeah, I really haven't had much training. I haven't read much, you know? So Nagiyama at all, they, they have a study about like culturally adapted um, therapy practices and how, again, there's very few. So it is something that we can all stand to, to learn. I mean, my own cultural humility practice is, you know, each year I reflect a little on like, what are my growth edges for this year and my goals? And so in the past, for example, there have been times, even me as a person of East Asian descent, I really went and had to do a lot of reading and learn more about Southeast Asian communities or, or people who have intergenerational refugee trauma, that that was a growth edge for me, or this year, it's really learning more about ableism and how that affects people's lives. So I think as therapists, figuring out what can we do to like fill these gaps so that a person doesn't feel like they're going to come in and actually get invalidated or microaggressed against by their own
0: therapist. Can you talk about that piece about the microaggressions that could be happening even as we speak in the therapy room so that clinicians hear like, I guess, the short list of, (laughs) hey, what not to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's true. There are times I've given trainings where I've actually gone on Reddit <laughs> and taken some quotes from people about their bad experiences <laughs> in therapy. And it's like, it's hard to hear as a therapist, but it's like, yeah, we got to learn, right? Um, yeah,
0: it's things like, well, and it's not also even just white therapists. Absolutely. I think, and I'm glad you make that distinction. Um, And I think It's that's a consideration as well, this awareness that even when we have our own marginalized identity card in the in our wallet, or multiple cards, that doesn't mean we know or understand what somebody else's card is and their experience Mm -hmm. of having that card in their wallet.
1: Yeah. So what comes to mind is, you know, the what not to do. There was a Filipina client whose East Asian therapist was like, colorism. I don't think that's real my family doesn't do that. Whereas for the Filipina client, colorism was a huge, constantly shaming, hurtful thing that happened all the time, you know? Um, or there was a client who said, upon meeting them, it seemed like the white therapist was trying really hard to maybe bond, but did it in a way that felt microaggressive. Like the white therapist talked about like how they had traveled to Japan, or how their friend had adopted an Asian baby, and it just felt like you're projecting these things onto me, and I'm not Japanese, and I'm not adopted, you know? Um, the number one complaint I actually hear from Asian American clients that they've experienced in therapy is actually about being told that their family boundaries are not individuated enough are too enmeshed, and that is a very individualistic Western view. Now, I work with plenty of my clients on boundary issues because I do think interpersonal boundaries are important for health, but it is not my place to impose my own personal preference for what exactly and where exactly those boundaries have to be set. And so that is the top thing I hear is individualistic Western therapists who don't comprehend intergenerational or codependent or collectivist boundaries telling clients like these values are not as good or they're not healthy or you or oversimplifying like you just need to do you and don't care what anybody thinks when that may not be their cultural
0: value. For our listeners who are not as familiar with the individualistic versus a collectivistic cultural norm, can you speak to that and how that might appear in therapy um, when working with an AAPI individual or family?
1: Maybe it's a level level of nuance, right? Like I had a client who her biggest issue was that she had a very serious falling out with her in-laws. I mean, this happens <laughs> to everybody, across cultures But <laughs> she, she had a very serious falling out with her in-laws. However, it was extremely valuable to her um, as a person, Chinese-Singaporean descent, to have close family intergenerational ties. That was a huge value. And so she really struggled because she definitely still wanted her children to have a positive relationship with their grandparents. And her white therapist just said well, this is very simple. You just do you. And she was like, well, but this is really important for the kids to have this bond. You know, it's very valuable. Like my my grandparents were a huge part of my life. And the therapist was like, no, you just need to stop. Like you do what's comfortable for you. Don't care about anybody else. And everyone else just has to accommodate that, you know. And it was really like completely negating, not even engaging in discussion about is there room for compromise you know, what would it mean? Um, you know, what is the meaning of your kids not being as close to their grandparents? Or, you know, just like a more nuanced explanation. It was very like you, the individual, are um, more important than anything else. And that's just not how a lot of people in this world function. And as I often point out when I do teach white therapist audiences, you know, collectivist cultures are the global majority. That is the global Norm. So it's actually those of us educated in a Western individualistic industrialized norm that are like not quite getting it, you know? And that I do think there has to be a way of helping people figure out how do they moderate the intergenerational gap? Like, yes, you absolutely should not probably do the same norms as your grandparents or parents did. You're in a different culture now, and times have changed. However, where that compromise takes place for each person is a very individual choice that they have to figure out what suits them and their family rather than just saying this is just the one way you and your family just need to do it the, you know, Western therapy model way. Like, yeah, that's not really going to work.
0: That said, knowing that My goodness, as I'm thinking about it, so many different models that we use in the United States are so big on like boundaries, 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 Mm -hmm. and are so different for many quote unquote Western therapists that have had this individualism. I guess they've really been marinated in it. Mm -hmm. How do they need to frame and approach therapy differently when working with individuals from collectivistic cultures?
1: It's really clarifying, right? And you're client may not have articulated this just as we have values that we may not have necessarily sat down and like written out and articulated they the client may not know but maybe spending some time doing that right like there's like those values worksheets and checklists in many cbt type workbooks or whatever we actually use those often just taking some time to clarify, especially because if you have bicultural people, we have third-culture people, um, you know, it, it gets confusing, like, yeah, I don't know, where are you in your, in your values and experience? Let's actually take some time and identify that, you know. Um, there was a fascinating study years ago, even just, it was a small one, but even just among Asian Americans at UC Berkeley. Right. We like to use our students as (laughs) research subjects, but that they had found even a difference between U.S. born Asian American students and those that had immigrated, even if they immigrated early. And it was something like it boiled down to if you ask the American born ones, what's the meaning of life? They generally tended to respond much more similarly to individualistic Western people. It was like, oh, the pursuit of happiness, you know. Whereas immigrants tended to say something like, to do something worthwhile, to be of value, to make my family proud, you know? And that's
0: a small but important core way of identifying yourself. Sitting with that idea, particularly right now, and I'm imagining myself as a white therapist sitting with a person or a family who's Asian American, how do we best make space to feel and talk through the gravity of what's happened to the community in the last few years.
1: I think the the ability to sort of validate and sit with a lot of ugliness, it's difficult for everybody and even for therapists. Right? I think sometimes there's a defensiveness that can kick in, you know, And that's a whole other Robin D'Angelo white fragility discussion, but right. But really just trying as we, as therapists can do well to try and sit with and listen, what is the experience without jumping in? Because I've, yeah, I've heard clients say things like my own psychiatrist said I was overthinking um, and basically invalidated that this hate crime had happened to me, you know, or showed a real lack of understanding, like, oh, but you're Asian. It's not like you face things like Black people do. Like, in the grand scheme of things, of course, we do not face the same stressors as Black communities. However, that doesn't mean that someone's not sitting with something extraordinarily painful or dangerous feeling. And there is a powerful role. Sometimes, you know, when I said culture match is not required, Sometimes people in small communities explicitly want a therapist that's not in their community. (laughs) I've worked with very small communities like Afghani and Cambodian. They're very small communities. They sometimes really do want a therapist who's not affiliated. And then sometimes it can be very powerful to have a white therapist validate something that they feel invalidated for. Like I'll always remember a young client who struggled a lot with feeling like his parents. He had a lot of, I think, internalized shame, internalized racism. He felt embarrassed his parents didn't speak English well. He felt resentful that they weren't as affectionate as his white friend's parents, you know. And for him, it was really powerful to have a white therapist say, you know, it seems like your parents do all these other things to show love. Like, what do you think it means when they send you food packages and pay your tuition and keep asking about how you slept or, you know, like... So it can actually be very validating um, to have a white clinician actually acknowledge things like, okay, your family does things differently, but it's still valuable and um, just as good. Or like, yeah, I do see how this is horribly unjust, what's happening in this community. And you're right. Um, we should talk about you know, how you're coping and what your rage is about or what are the resources we can bring. As you learn about how to protect your kids against bullying, or maybe that you want to take a more active role in social justice because it helps you feel empowered at a time that things feel really hateful. But yeah, validation is huge, right? Not buying into like the very limited range of what we know. And I think sitting with cultural humility and growth, it's difficult sometimes, but it's hugely important. And even as a within the Asian American community, I'm the ma- the the majority dominant, right? I'm an East Asian person. Um, I've had to really sit with like, okay, I need to learn more about the path of Tongan Americans in this country or people from Laos. Um, I didn't even know about Hmong people until I started working in Asian Community health services in Oakland. So we all have growth areas and being really, really open about that. And that includes just trying our best to set a therapeutic space where the client can feel okay to give feedback. And it might not always be verbal feedback because not every culture is comfortable face-to-face verbally confronting someone who may be an authority figure.
0: As you were talking about that, I was thinking about what you had said about a referral from a teacher or from an MD and that idea as well with authority. I've had the experience... I do not have a doctorate, uh, but I have had the experience, particularly working with the AAPI community, being given the title doctor (laughs) and saying, nope, just a therapist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. master's level. Uh, But I think it draws attention to that phenomenon and the awareness of power differential in the Mm -hmm. room. And that's also kind of part of the culture as well. Yeah.
1: That hierarchy is a really big deal, you know, and it's really ancient. But we can really play a role in being like um, – so, yeah, for example, some Asian clients have – there was an Asian international student at Columbia, I think, who made a video about how she never said anything when she was unhappy with her therapist. But she would fill out the, like, evaluation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so are there ways they can give us feedback or how we respond to it, right? I've had clients say, like, no, actually, my family does this or – and, 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 you know, and just being open to being like, oh, like, I apologize, like, I was mistaken, or I made an assumption. Right? And hopefully, really demonstrating that there's space for that in this relationship.
0: I'm glad you bring up that piece and the importance of clinicians making space. And for any of our listeners, we have so many continuing ed courses that are talking about things like implicit racial bias, when uh, therapist-client values clash, when we've created a cultural offense, things like that. So I encourage you to listen to those. One of the pieces that's coming up for me as we're talking about this, Dr. Helen, this community right now is reasonably scared,
1: and Mm -hmm. I could
0: also hear the potential for someone of Asian American descent coming in and saying, well, how do I keep myself safe? And almost the therapy shifting to more of a case management in talking about practical resources and services. What are some of the things that you'd like clinicians to keep in mind if they're faced with that question of like, how do I keep myself safe? What do I do? When do I go to the market? How, you know, what if it's after dark, all of these considerations that are very real?
1: I mean, I think it is a good time for all clinicians to read up on Resources and practicalities It will, of course, vary depending on where you live. Although one of the sad things about this particular way of anti-Asian harassment, you know, people have tended to feel they were safer in places with lots of other um Diverse communities, but that hasn't been true. So, the Stop AAPI Hate website is a really great resource for clinicians who may feel like, I don't know a lot about this. Um, Stop AAPI Hate is a site that allows people to record and track incidents, but it also has data. So, it, it, you can also learn more about things. There's also a great youth buy in for youth report at the Stop AAPI Hate site. So, that's really worth reading as well, especially if you work with young people. Um, there's things like bystander intervention training, right? That that's a great thing for any community member to take and refer people to. And really thinking about, uh, Dr. Bettina Love talks about being an accomplice, a collaborator, more than just an ally. And I really love that, right? So an ally is like, yeah, I think this is bad. Maybe I'm posting things. Maybe I'm... You know, talking to a few people, but stepping it up to a level of being an accomplice, a collaborator, implies having to put some real skin in the game, some work, or some risk. Um, and that's something for each therapist to think about as so many communities are under attack. So, about four years ago, for example, the Asian American Psych Association took a stand. To, for example, support Black Lives Matter, to go to their rally, to fundraise, to speak up, um, even when we got some very negative pushback, right? But it's like, ultimately, how do we as therapists live with our values and support communities as we're trying to teach clients
0: to live within their values um, and be empowered, Thank you for sharing that idea about the difference between an ally and an accomplice and that allyship sometimes can just basically be a bumper sticker and that it's much more than that and I appreciate that framing in the importance of actually as therapists and for many clinicians viewing ourselves as inherently part of the social justice process to think about our involvement And have it be greater than a bumper sticker. Have it be greater than just making space in the therapy room, but to actually be very deliberate in our uh, creation of being an accomplice. I I appreciate that Mm -hmm. that framing for clinicians who are listening. You've already listed some great resources. um, The Stop AAPI Hate. There, as uh, Dr. Helen had mentioned, there's some really good resources out there for bystander intervention, and really well done. Uh, PDFs and infographics that are helpful to view of you know if you're around these things when they're happening. What are other trainings that you would want other clinicians to go to that you know personally are are really good? There's more and more
1: available, I mean that's maybe our only good thing right out of pandemic, <laughs> uh, remotely, remote options, um, or even the Asian American um, Psychology Association has a conference every year it's going to be remote this year like last year um we are setting up slowly a youtube site to deal with remote life there's an asian american journal of psychology which has i think our most popular issue was the one around like this phenomena of tiger parenting but there's special issues on suicide on all these different topics um and really just seeking out for yourself like like I have a friend who's teaching uh, a class um, f- for master's level therapist and she's looking for a new text on multicultural um, counseling and really what we're finding is that these days a lot of people are saying that the general multicultural cultural competence models are not quite sufficient you know that it's really about we're constantly learning like even I am never going to be culturally just competent, period. It's not like you are or you aren't. It's like this gradient of like I can always be keeping and getting better and learning. The same way that I'm having to learn about how do I serve like Gen Z, you know, and the IGen, we can all learn to do better about how we're serving certain cultural communities and stay in tune with that. So pay attention to what your your own professional orgs might offer. Um, I just did a big training for California Marriage Family Therapy Association. I think there are more and more um, more specific trainings. And then also looking at intersectional trainings, right? It's different for, say, people who are asylum seekers. Um, it's different for people who may be queer or disabled. Um, That's... It, it isn't a coincidence that sometimes the more aware of something I become, suddenly it seems like more of my clients have these issues. <laughs> and is it just because now I'm doing better at like making space for, you know, chronic illness as well as your cultural identity, for example? So thinking about that, I do have a YouTube channel that is also fledgling that was only revived because of pandemic. <laughs> um And... There's also just an anti-harassment. There's more and more anti-harassment, like resource guides out. But there is one at Stanford I can send the link to that just gives a little bit of history and then resource. And the resource list just keeps growing, unfortunately, with the times that we're in. Thank you so much, Doctor.
0: For people who want to do some reading or listen to audiobooks, are there any particular books that you find particularly helpful and notable for Opening our perspective and awareness of working with the AAPI community. You'll
1: always hear Gerald Wing Sue, and he does have a new one out now that I think is really helpful that actually talks about micro interventions, right? And so he's done a huge body of work, as have many others, about microaggressions or why even talking about racism is so difficult. But I think this newest one on microinterventions is a really good guide to just how even small things that we can do in everyday life or maybe small things in session can be a force against racism and microaggressions in these little ways um, and what they actually like sound like, for example. So I think that's a really great place to start. And then for for specific communities, there are books like Kevin Adol's books about Filipino-American psychology in particular. Um, And then I'd mention Kathy Park Hong's uh, Minor Feelings, which is not a therapy book, but is really a powerful book about contemporary Asian-American
0: experiences. Thank you. I think these are very helpful resources. Again, for our listeners, we have Dr. Helen Sue here, and Dr. Helen. For people who want to get in touch with you or learn more, more about the breadth of the work that you do, please share that information with us.
1: I'd be happy to see. You. Well, I am on YouTube, just under Helen H. Sue, and as as well as on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm actually Hella Mental Health. If you're from Northern
0: California, you know what <laughs> hell is about. I'm from NorCal. <laughs> I get the hell. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And how about? Are there any other articles or resources, any trainings you you personally have coming up or are involved in? You mentioned the YouTube channel. You have some there.
1: Other than that, um, basically, if you also follow the Asian American Psychological Association, which does have a, f- a Facebook page, um, and as I said, building a YouTube page. Um, AAPA is a great source nationwide for a whole wide variety of Asian American mental health issues. And we have divisions within us focusing on topics such as women, multiple heritage Asians, LGBTQ, South Asians, um, a division on practice, Filipino Americans. So AAPA is actually probably like a great hub. And there's also a group called Asian Mental Health Collective, and
0: they have a Facebook page as well. Wonderful. This has been so helpful and thank you for taking this time out, particularly at a time like this, to help the clinical community be more of service to the AAPI community. I really appreciate it.
1: Great. I'm glad to be here. We we need our therapists very badly. I I believe in therapy and that it does a huge service. And yes, I'd like to see more and more Asian Americans actually find, yeah, confident,
0: affirming counselors.